This is David Neeson, welcoming you to chapter 182 of A History of England. We've reached a time of increasing violence. Let's start with the unions, which were beginning to test their growing strength. Workers were poorly protected by law, with no obligation on employers to recognise or negotiate with unions, pay a decent wage, or even provide for the safety of their employees. Child labour was still possible. My grandfather started work at 14, and children were paid a great deal less than adults, making them a wonderful tool to undermine pay claims. Employers were at liberty to dismiss employees at will and even to blacklist any seen as troublemakers. Though they had defeats as well as victories, unions were growing in power, especially in good economic times when there were few unemployed workers to replace strikers. Some actions were particularly significant, such as the miners' strike in 1911, which pushed the Prime Minister Asquith, and above all his chance with the Exchequer Lloyd George, to add to the social legislation they'd kicked off with national insurance. The Coal Mines Minimum Wage Act of 1912 set a base wage for men in a dangerous job. More significantly, it also reinforced the move within the Liberal Party, traditionally against interfering with the economy, towards direct government intervention. With the increasing number of strikes came an increase in violence. Demonstrations by strikers sometimes turned to rioting and looting, with police sent in to end the unrest. In serious cases, the police might even call on the army to help them out. There were injuries and even deaths on both sides. However, let's not exaggerate things. Between 1870 and 1914, the United States saw between 500 and 800 deaths associated with labour disputes, most of them caused by the police or military. The equivalent figure in France was 35. In Britain, it was 7. So British strike violence was ugly, but in relative terms it was mercifully limited. Now let's turn again to the women's suffrage movement. Back in chapter 180, we talked about how the suffragettes of Emmeline Pankhurst's Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, moved increasingly towards violence. They started with window breaking, but then moved on to arson and even bombings, principally letter bombs, which left four dead and 24 injured. Both sides called these acts terrorist. The suffragettes' intention was to terrorise voters into backing their campaign in the hope of a return to peace. The suffragists of the other main suffrage association, Millicent Fawcett's National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, NUWSS, rejected the use of violence. That led to sharp divisions particularly well illustrated by what happened in the London Society for Women's Suffrage, the LSWS. Millicent Fawcett saw off a WSPU bid to take over the LSWS in 1908. She told members that they had to make a choice. If they couldn't commit to the NUWSS policy of legal and peaceful action, they should leave. Over the next three months, 133 did go but 293 new members joined. That reflects the increasing polarisation of the women's movement, but also the sustained level of majority backing for the suffragists 
over the suffragettes. You may also remember that the movements were beginning to shift politically in response to their disappointments with a liberal government that failed to deliver the vote. The suffragettes moved closer to the conservatives while the suffragists turned to Labour, even though many of their leaders hoped to return to the Liberals if and when they decided to back votes for women with a little more commitment. Those changes led to splits among the suffragettes since many women in the WSPU were also keen Labour supporters. Although Emmeline Pankhurst's eldest daughter Christabel shared her views and may indeed have helped push her mother away from Labour, among the many suffragettes still committed to the left were her other two daughters. The labour convictions of the youngest daughter, Adela, were an embarrassment to Emmeline and Christabel. Eventually, they spent £20 to buy her a passage to Australia, where she went in 1914 and remained for the rest of her life. She became a founder member of the Australian Communist Party, was then expelled and moved across the political spectrum, ending up in the far-right Australia First movement. That, incidentally, wasn't as surprising as it may sound. The roots of 20th century fascism weren't in the traditional right, but mostly in the left and working class movements. The first fascist in power, Benito Mussolini in Italy, came out of the Socialist Party. The British Union of Fascists was led by Oswald Mosley, once seen as a potential future leader of the Labour Party. And it isn't by accident that even the Nazi Party was, to give its name in full, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. The most interesting of the three Pankhurst daughters, to me at least, was the middle one, Sylvia. She remained close to Labour, both politically and personally. In November 1912, George Lansbury, a future Labour leader, disgusted by his party's lukewarm support for women's suffrage, resigned his parliamentary seat in East London where Sylvia was active to fight a by-election focused on the issue. The WSPU offered its support, but because it was increasingly anti-male, tensions grew between it and Labour. That put off many working-class voters. The result was that Lansbury failed in his bid for re-election and Parliament lost a clear voice backing women's suffrage. Christabel Pankhurst drew the conclusion that the women's movement couldn't count on men or the working class. Her sister Sylvia, on the other hand, remained firmly committed to linking feminism and socialism. She turned the East London branches of the WSPU into a semi-autonomous organisation, the East London Federation of the WSPU. It backed universal suffrage and not just equality for women with the existing limited franchise for men, the national WSPU policy. It also rejected the arson campaign and the anti-male stance. In November 1913, Sylvia shared a platform at a public meeting with George Lansbury in defiance of instructions from the increasingly autocratic leadership of her mother Emmeline and her sister Christabel. According to Christabel, all WSPU members should take their instructions and walk in step like an army. In January 1914, she decided to expel her sister Sylvia for failing to comply and insisted her organisation change its name, dropping the reference to the WSPU. Sylvia renamed it as the East London Federation of Suffragettes and, at least, escaped Adela's fate of being exiled to Australia. 
What about the anti-male stance of the WSPU? Both the NUWSS and the WSPU saw the campaign for the vote as only a part, though an essential first step, in a wider feminist campaign to end the dominance of men over women. The NUWSS saw women as superior to men, specifically in morals. That was one of the reasons they opposed suffragette violence. They saw it as a surrender to an essentially male way of pursuing political change and an abandonment of the moral high ground that naturally belonged to women. They continued to allow men to join the movement if they were prepared to campaign alongside women for female suffrage. The WSPU leaders, in contrast, adopted the rhetoric of a sex war in their campaign and did not allow male members. Harold Smith, in his overview of the suffrage movement, points out that Christabel claimed, inaccurately, that 75-80% to of men were infected with venereal disease before marriage and concluded that women should avoid sexual relations with men. She portrayed the suffrage movement as a revolt against a system that treated women as the sex slaves of men and demanded votes for women and chastity for men. Such evidence as Diaries of the Time suggests that both Emmeline and Christabel took this kind of feeling to a natural conclusion in lesbian as opposed to heterosexual relationships. Indeed, Emmeline had a long relationship with the composer Ethel Smith, who joined the WSPU and wrote its anthem, The March of the Women. Sylvia, on the other hand, certainly as forcefully feminist as her mother and sister, refused to break with men in her private relationships any more than she broke with George Lansbury politically. Later in life, she had a child whose father she lived with but outside marriage, which she saw as an unnecessary endorsement by the state of an essentially private relationship. In the years leading up to the First World War, she was in a long-standing involvement with the Labour leader Keir Hardy. Some of his biographers clearly find it embarrassing to admit that he may have been unfaithful to his devoted Scottish wife, though he never let her join him in London, where he lived when attending to his parliamentary duties, and Sylvia Pankhurst isn't the only woman whose name was linked with his. Sylvia was a quarter of a century his junior, and first met him as a child. There was undoubtedly something of a father-daughter relationship between them, which may well have morphed into something more like a mentor-disciple one. Whether or not they finally became lovers, it's impossible to say with certainty. She was a fine painter and did two portraits of Hardy, which she later left to the National Portrait Gallery. A good poet, she wrote to him that sunshine distilled is in your eyes and described their relationship as an enclosed garden. That, I reckon, suggests a close relationship, but I'll leave it to you to judge just how close. Incidentally, love affairs between leading politicians and younger women were far from uncommon, despite the prudish morality of the times. Lloyd George had many affairs, the longest with his secretary Francis Stevenson, 25 years younger than him, who became his second wife two years after the death of his first. H.H. Asquith was in a possibly unconsummated relationship with Venetia Stanley, nearly 35 years his junior, writing up to three letters a day to her between 1910 and 1915, some from inside cabinet meetings. Ironically, those are sometimes the only record of the discussions there. As suffragette violence grew, so did the state's response. The horror of force-feeding of hunger-striking women led to an outcry against a liberal government which wasn't living up to its name. 
It deviously chose a less brutal but even less liberal approach in the Prisoners' Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act of 1913, also known as the Cat and Mouse Act. That allowed for the temporary release from prison of hunger strikers close to death and their re-arrest just as soon as they had recovered. No suffragette died in prison of a brutal treatment. That left the movement without a real martyr who'd given her life for the cause. Eventually, though, one would. We talked about Emily Davison in chapter 180 as the pioneer of setting fire to postboxes. She suffered force-feeding 49 times during her many imprisonments. However, her habit of engaging in militant actions unauthorised by the leadership won her the reputation of a rebel. In 1910, they fired her from her job with the WSPU. Then, on the 4th of June 1913, Davison ran out onto the racetrack while the classic horse race, the Derby, was being run. She collided with the king's horse and was knocked unconscious, the base of her skull fractured. She died in hospital four days later. Many then and now believe that she committed suicide as a deliberate act of protest. Among her belongings, however, there were the return stub of a train ticket, a ticket for a dance later the same day, as well as a diary with appointments for the following week. It now seemed more likely that she died by accident trying to throw a suffragette flag over the horse. Even so, it was undoubtedly a death in the service of the cause. The WSPU, conveniently forgetting that they'd fired her, turned her funeral on the 14th of June 1913 into the celebration of a martyrdom. 50,000 lined the route her coffin took through London on her way to the train that would take her home for burial. 5,000 women wearing the suffragette colours followed the coffin with several hundred men behind. Emmeline Pankhurst had hoped to attend, but was arrested under the Cat and Mouse Act that very morning. A violent death had led to the event that turned out to be what Davison's biographer, June Purvis, called the last of the great suffragette spectacles. Well, that's more than enough violence for one episode. There'll be more next week, plenty more, when we return to Ireland, and especially when we get to the Balkans, and the explosion of violence there that would tear Europe apart. In the meantime, thanks for listening. <laughs>